From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 609, DevOps Update with guest Nicole Forsgren, recorded October 4th, 2018. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my favorite people today, Dr. Nicole Forsgren, who's the CEO and Chief Scientist at the DevOps Research and Assessment Agency, that's DORA, and the co-author of the book, Accelerate, the Science of Lean Software and DevOps. She is best known as lead investigator on the largest DevOps study to date, and she has been a professor, performance engineer, and sysadmin. Her work has been published in several peer-reviewed journals, and she's one of the few people I know who actually has a degree and a doctorate at that in what she does for a living. Welcome back, Nicole. (laughs) Thanks so much. It's good to be back. You're a real IT professional. The rest of us are just faking it. But, you know, you're the real deal. I don't know if I'd say that. (laughs) I mean, I work with some pretty amazing people and I get to talk with some like brilliant, brilliant teams. So I bet. Yeah, no kidding. I love what we get to do, right? Well, and I've had a chance to talk to you with Gene Kim, and I've had a chance to talk to you with Jez. They're both astonishing and and absolutely key drivers behind this. But it felt like when you came on board, the quality of the reporting or the understanding of the significance of this movement just jumped a whole other level. Well, thank you. So yeah, right? Like, let's go ahead and talk about how I'm super lucky because I basically got the best team. I mean, everyone else has the best team, but yeah. also I have the best team. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Dora is myself and Jez Humble and Gene Kim. Those are the co-founders. And we've we've got this like great, amazing, fun work that we get to do. And it's research. And then we kind of roll that into assessment in case companies ever want to understand a customized view of where they are, what they should focus on strategically, and then how they can benchmark against the rest of the industry. But yeah, it it was really fun because I got to kind of step into this project or (laughs) invite myself into this project, right? Walk into the dance and, you know, leverage my background in as a software engineer and as a sadman and as a performance analyst, and also leverage my training as a researcher and as a scientist and say, you know, let's take a real rigorous approach to this, right? Like the work they had done previously was great, but it was also an opportunity to say, like, let's really see what drives performance in statistically significant ways. And it has been quite the ride. Well, and it's super easy, I think, especially with DevOps, to stay with the anecdotal. There's so many good stories that you can kind of make a point with that. But I do appreciate how rigorous your approach is to the data. And I, and I understand there's a new report out? Yes. Yes, we just released the 2018 report. And this year, we actually named it a slightly differently, right? So this year, it's the Accelerate State of DevOps Report, and it's Strategies for a New Economy. We kind of added that little subtitle this year because we realized in partnering with a team at Google, they were lovely. And they were like, you know, as we go through your early findings in the early report, because, you know, we're also like, we're always racing through to make sure we can get it out as quickly as possible. They were like, 
this is so much more than just a typical analyst report. This isn't just a typical vendor report, right? You're really looking to the future. You're helping companies and you're helping teams. And when I point out, you know, the Google team was great in terms of collaboration. And and this was in, in part the marketing team, right? And they were like, this does so much more. This really is forward looking. And so we kind of like added that in there. So it was kind of a signal to everyone else to say, you know, this is what helps you look forward. This is what helps you plan for the future, which now like so many people have been like, well, yeah, because for people who have read the report for the last four years, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's what we've always done, right? There's always been the how. There's always been, you know, what should you do moving forward? But for people who haven't read this in the past, because there's there's always a good section of people who aren't familiar with this. And I do appreciate poking around in the report myself that while you've got a non-trivial number, I think roughly a third of large organizations that, that participate in the study, you've also got some smaller orgs too. Like more of the data comes from these 100 person less, you know, 500 person less companies. Yeah. I mean, we've, we collect data from all over. And I love the fact that that helps us be relatively... I don't want to say representative, but like we do capture a good portion of what's happening in industry, right? So we capture large organizations, small organizations, highly regulated organizations, like startups. And like I joke that it's the Cowboys, right? You can do whatever you want. Yeah. The no ops model. (laughs) The no rules model. Yeah. Right. You can do whatever you want. Make it up as you go. And then we test for statistical significance all the way throughout. So. If it's okay, I'm going to like sneak to one of the findings this year because it kind of came up or I'm going to help it come up, right? Mm -hmm. It's a nice segue. Industry doesn't matter. Interesting. So often we work with organizations and they say, you know, but I work in a highly regulated field. There's no way I can develop and deliver software with the kind of speed that these crazy startups can do. Yeah, yeah. That's often the excuse. It's just there's no way. They're such a small team and they're, you know, all rock stars. There can be way more, quote unquote, agile than I can be. Exactly. But you know what? Well, first of all, like I, trust me, I've seen real bad software built <laughs> by startups, right? Yep. Because it's, it's just easier to build a quick monolith and then you suddenly you scale, right? Yep. Like, yay, you win. So you've scaled your monolith. Like that's, that's real, right? That's bad. It happens. The whole thing, I think, with startups is because when they fail, they go broken and they're gone, where larger organizations get to fail a bunch of times. Yeah. So, I ran additional analysis, Mm -hmm. and we find that industry is not statistically significant to software development and delivery because- Very interesting. We can also point to plenty of anecdotal evidence from highly regulated companies that have found ways to be fast and stable because you know what? They have to be. Because the industry is moving. The economy is moving. We have to. Yes, you're going to have more hurdles. You will have more things in your way. But you know what? Like, this is the new world. Right. Yeah. Do you find overall, are people generally moving faster compared to a couple of years ago when you were doing this reporting? Yes. And we see that strongly in the report. We see big growth in our high performers. And Hmm. when I talk about high performers, we take a very data-driven approach to classifying the data, classifying teams. Okay. And that's based on, as I, you know, I keep saying speed and stability, right? So we see big growth in this high performance group. And these are the groups, these are the teams 
that are able to develop and deliver software with both speed and stability. And this year, I want to say it, it's 48% of our respondents this year. Wow. Almost half. Yeah, almost half. What makes a high performer? What's the measures that matter? So what makes a high performer are four measures, right? Two that measure speed or throughput and two that measure stability. Okay. So when we talk about throughput, we're talking about deployment frequency. How often do you deploy code? How often do you push code to production? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect of that is lead time for changes. How long does it take to go from code commit to code successfully running in production? Interesting. So not the coding time, but once it's written and you commit it, how long before it's actually running in the production bias? Yep, exactly. And we exclude that writing process because that writing process is much more creative. It's R&D. There's much more variability in that process for understandable reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what if we focus on code commit to code deploy? That's much more predictable, right? We can make that much more efficient, much more predictable, right? We expect less variability there. And there's an argument of, about automatability across that automated testing being the biggest piece, I think, in terms of the time that you can control there, as well as the actual pipelines to deploy. Exactly, exactly. Now, that was the speed and throughput piece, right? Sure. Now, the other piece of that, kind of the balance, right? The tension piece it's going to be instability. So here we're talking about time to restore service. Mm -hmm. So how long does it take to restore service if there's any type of service incident? And then change failure rate. So what percentage of changes that you introduce into production result in any type of degraded service, right? That requires any type of attention or remediation. Right. Now, the interesting thing that we have seen for five years in a row now, so ever since I joined the project, Holy cow, it's been five years. It's been five years. We're, we're into kindergarten. We're well past toddler <laughs> stage. I have a child. Yep, totally out of diapers, right? I know. You would hope. What we see is that these measures go together. High performers are able to achieve throughput and stability in tandem. There are not trade-offs. Now, I'll also mention low performers are struggling at all of these. Okay. Poor throughput, poor stability. There's not this trade-off that some people talk about that in able to be stable, you must slow down. Right. It's not there. And for five years in a row, 30,000 data points, like, sorry, I'm not buying, I'm not going to be buying this argument. This might be a trend. Right. Well, and this is where, as you said, anecdotes and lots of anecdotes are nice, but sometimes there's data. Now, sometimes anecdotes and stories really speak to people. And Mm -hmm. for, for another group, another category of people, data is very strong. This is where I think data really helps us because someone's always got a story. There's always that one team. There's always that one org. There's always that one case where they're like, oh, but they tried to go fast and everything broke. Right. But was it really the fact that they were going fast that caused them to break? Or was it a myriad of completely missing capabilities that caused them to break? Was it the fact that they had done no testing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was it the fact that they had done you know, like there was no version control. Was it the fact that everything was like custom rolled? What actually was it that caused everything to break and they only happened to go fast, right? That's correlation. That's not causation. Right, right. And then it's that one story, that one anecdote that sticks in their heads that makes them ignore the dozens of anecdotes that we've had for almost a decade now, right? If you go back to all spawn Hammond's talk at Velocity 2009. Yep. 
dev and ops cooperation at Flickr, 10 deploys a day. We've heard so many stories ever since then. We're at 2018 right now. That was 2009. We're talking about nine years of so many stories of people getting throughput and stability. But someone always comes back to me and they've got like that one story of that one team, of that one case, of that one time where they're insistent. So it's nice that anyone can now say, no, we have so many stories and so much data showing this is not the way it is. Speed and stability go together. Right. So what does it look like to be a high performer in terms of the deployment frequency, lead time for changes, restoration and change failure rate? So year over year over year, we've always seen the highest performers mm-hmm. able to optimize on all measures. All the measures are better. All measures. Now, this year, that high performance group grew so much. Yeah, like 48%. It's huge. Right. It's huge. And so what we did is I, I looked at those numbers and I was like, oh, it looks like they've slipped a little bit. They haven't slipped. What this is, is it almost looks like a mass migration, hmm. right? So many people are catching up. And so I took another look at the data and I realized there's a subset of this high performance group that's our existing high performers from forever, right? Like we've always had this highest performance group. So if we take a look at these elite performers, we're again seeing this ability to optimize on everything. And so what this looks like is deploy frequency on demand. It's multiple times a day, right? Hmm. Anytime you want, you deploy. Lead time for changes is less than an hour. And I think this is significant. And here's why. Because anytime you have something go wrong with your system, right? Let's think about what's the difference between our regular change process Mm -hmm. and our emergency change process. Right. It's usually the fact that we skip tests. Yes. Which is like, that's scary. It's the dumbest thing you could possibly do, really. It's so dumb. Mm -hmm. Except like when you're in panic, you have to. But also when you're in panic, the last thing we should be doing is skipping tests. Yeah. But if you have such an amazing, clean, solid, advanced pipeline that your code can push through in less than an hour, you no longer have to skip tests. You just push code. Right. Like, it's fine. Everything's fine. The testing's got to be automated to get through in less than an hour. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Sure, you might skip some tests, but those tests that you skip are going to be like the manual tests that are always manual, like exploratory testing, user testing, but you're not going to do those in an emergency process anyway. And and they're not likely tests that cause outages. Exactly. So, you still get your full automated test suite, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is great. Okay. When we move on to our stability measures, the elite performers can restore service in less than an hour. And their change fail rate is 0 to 15%. So, it kind of makes sense to me that the lead time for changes in the time to restore at the elite level should be almost the same. Yep. They're very, very close. And that's the best we can do. So, that's right. that's as granular as I collect data because we're talking about surveys, right? Mm-hmm. So, people are good at answering these types of questions. Less than an hour? Yes. Less than a day? Sure. Right? But I'm not going to ask anything more granular than that because people aren't going to be good at that. Right. Anything more granular we need to capture out of systems. Yeah, it gets hard to measure. Yeah. And Nicole, I need to interrupt you for just one moment for this very important message. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by SQL Intersection. Eight full day workshops and over 40 technology focused sessions make SQL Intersection a unique source of the best information around SQL Server from real world consultants and the members of the SQL Server team. 
You'll learn proven problem-solving techniques and technologies you can implement immediately, as well as learn about the future of SQL Server. Get answers to performance monitoring, troubleshooting, designing for scale and performance cloud, as well as new features in the latest version of SQL Server. It's time to determine your migration strategy, and SQL Intersection is the place to figure out the best way to do it. Come to SQL Intersection at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas, December 3rd to 6th. Use the code RUNAS to get your discount on your registration at thesequelintersection.com. And I'll see you there. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell, Runaz Radio, talking to Dr. Nicole Forsgren. And we're talking about the state of DevOps in 2018, the latest set of reports out of Dora. And this idea that the industry's crossed the chasm in terms of these practices where we're talking about between the elites and the high performers, more than half operating at this level with such low failure rates and such rapid iteration like it's no longer the unicorns this is the a lot of horses running this fast yeah we've got a lot of people that are jumping on board that are understanding that technology is foundational for success right now right and that transformation is really what's necessary so we talked a little bit about this idea of most there's this group of people who are afraid to go faster because it makes the situation worse what can you really talk to about this position So we've got some holdouts, right? Right. Which I continue to see as I work with a handful of people in industry, right? There's always this group that says, you know what? I've been around for a long time. I've seen technology for a long time. Mm -hmm. We've got a set of like tried and true and and tested methods that are going to be fine. And we've always released software once every couple of years or once a year. And like now we're up to a couple times a year and it's going to be fine. Right. And all we need to do is a whole lot of testing. Right. Right. Oh, we'll put in a whole bunch of quality checks and everything's going to be fine. And we keep warning them that this isn't a good strategy. And the reason it's not a good strategy is that if you only push code a couple times a year, what happens is you ended up bunching up code. You have these huge, massive releases that when you do push them, your surface area, your blast radius is huge. Sure. So, right, you've introduced this huge, huge piece of code that, like, probabilistically, like, the likelihood of that introducing zero defects, like, zero problems on interface is so low. Right. And then identifying bugs or defects, like, what went wrong with it is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And so we discovered a group this year. I went and I I kept looking at the data. There's a group I call misguided performers, Hmm. right? Like they're trying. They meanwhile, they're taking this cautious approach. They're pushing code between one month and six months. Their lead time is between one month and six months, right? So it takes them about that long to get code through, which I'm going to talk about, right? So I'm going to make sure I come back to that. Their failure rate is actually better than the low performers. Interesting. So they do sort of achieve that goal of like not doing too bad. The problem is that when they go down, their time to restore is between one and six months. That's a long time. I mean, when they go down, they go down hard. Right. So think about like healthcare.gov. Oh, yeah. Sure. Think about Sony, right? When they were hacked, they were hacked and they were hacked and they were hacked and they were hacked, right? And people are like, oh, but that's not the same thing. Yes, it is. Because you might have an ability for customers to kind of access some services within hours or days. But you're desperately trying to restore systems in the back for weeks or months. Sure. That's why Sony kept getting hacked. They weren't restored, right? Everyone in the back is trying to pull up systems and infrastructure and data. 
you're not back yet. Now, remember when I said, you know, I just walked through those stats really quickly. Time to push code is between one and six months. What happens if you need to fix something sure. and your system has gone down? It takes you months to get that through the system. Right. Or what if you even have compliance or regulatory fixes to get through or a security patch? One to six months is a long time for that to get through your system, especially if it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's the fact that you're operating at this cadence doesn't mean you get to go faster when it's an emergency. Right. And by the way, this is 5% of, the, of our respondents. Interesting. Okay. I mean, it's a non-trivial group. So, do you, you know, your low performers is not a huge group, but this misguided, do they fall into the low performing category? Or are they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a subset. Subset of the low performers. Mm-hmm. So, if you're talking about, and it, I see here on the report, it's 15% were low performers. So, a third of them were what you put in this misguided category. Yeah. Really interesting. Between the two, the mediums, what's the difference between a medium and a high? So, medium's doing not as well as high. So, they're all statistically significant differences. Okay. So, Nicole, what role did the cloud play in uh, affecting these results? You know, I love this question. Mm -hmm. So, and here's why. There are several technical practices that contribute to an ability to develop and deliver software with speed and stability, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Cloud is one of them. But cloud, I think, offers a huge untapped opportunity for so many companies, which right now, so many people right now are like making this face at me like, Nicole, what are you talking about? Right? Like, well, for one or two reasons. One, people are going to be like, everyone's going to the cloud. What do you mean? Like, it's an untapped opportunity. Or number two, people are like, what are you talking about, Nicole? We went to the cloud and we didn't get this like amazing, amazing performance gain. Hmm. What are you even talking about? Or some people are like, well, duh, of course I know cloud's amazing. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, that was so, like, 2010. Like, this is old, old news, Nicole. Right. Well, here's the thing. So, we asked respondents if they were in the cloud, right? If the primary service or application that you were working on was in the cloud, right? We got a whole bunch of people answering, right? Mm-hmm. And then later, we asked them about some essential components and practices, right? Yeah. We asked if the primary service or application they were working on used on-demand self-service, right? Okay. So, basically, like, you can't be using tickets. Right. We asked if they had broad network access, right? So, can you access your cloud through several different types of endpoints, like mobile phones and tablets and laptops? Right. Do you use resource pooling? Right. So, are resources pooled in a multi tenant model with resources dynamically assigned and reassigned on demand? We asked if they had rapid elasticity, right? So, like, do you have bursting? And then we asked if they had measured service, right? Are the cloud systems, do you have automatic control and optimized resource use by leveraging a metering capability, kind of a thing, mm-hmm. at whatever level of abstraction is appropriate? So, those five things, by the way, are the NIST definition of what cloud computing is. Interesting. Yeah. So, here's what we found. Only 22% of people who said they're in the cloud are actually doing those five things. So, this is more cloud as the architecture is defined by NIST as opposed to cloud the product that you buy. Or cloud like someone said we're in the cloud. Right. Because like, or maybe your organization redefined it. Like, someone had a checky box they had to 
someone in a suit yeah. with a V in front of their name, title, <laughs> right? Said, we need to go to the cloud. Yeah. So this is, but that's hard. So here's like, we've redefined it internal to the organization. We're going to the cloud, the cloud, right? We're going to the cloud, checked it off. We're, we're in the cloud now. But like no one bothered to check and see if we're doing these five essential things. Right. The things that make the difference. And then here's what we found. For those that are doing all five, not like one or two or three, all five essential characteristics, they're 23 times more likely to be elite performers. Interesting. So there's this huge disconnect between people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm doing the cloud. And like, okay, but like, are you really doing the cloud? Right. Because, yeah, it's kind of hard. It's kind of tough. Or people who are like, well, we went to the cloud. We didn't see all these benefits. Yeah. Okay. Again, but did you really go to the cloud? No, no, I totally get it. You know, we see that all the time where people grab onto the buzzword and find a way to be able to include themselves in it, but don't actually take on the practices. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. And so now, like the latest, my favorite dumb drum I'm beaten on right now is like, it is coming down to execution. Mm -hmm. We need to know what the core practices are. And, and I've been saying this for a few years, although for some other things, right? Some organizations redefine CI and continuous integration. Right. And then we'll work with them, you know, through Dora, the, our assessment product. And they're like, what do you mean we're not doing CI right? Of course we have CI. It was our initiative last year. We killed it. Sure. I got the report and everything. Yeah. Like we have on our checky box, right? We all got the certificate. We printed off our computers. <laughs> but then they realize that, you know, we come back through our assessment and there are four key components that make CI predictive of performance gains. Mm -hmm. And they're only doing two of them. Right. Again, it's like by no fault of their own, but someone organizationally redefined it to be something else. They checked off the box and they moved on. Right. You're not going to get the performance gains from CI or from version control or from cloud unless you're doing everything. You can't be skipping steps and expect to get the benefits. Sure. You can't buy the gym membership and not go to the gym. Yeah. And expect to get the cardio benefits. I'm paying for the access to the gym. Isn't that enough? <laughs> I bought I the book. Don't tell me I have to read it too. It's the worst. <laughs> it's a great coffee table yeah. decoration. Look how look how smart I appear. Is it the tooling that makes a difference? You know, I don't think it is. And mm -hmm. we so we never ask about a particular tool. What matters instead and what's important is the capabilities that a tooling or a solution provides. Hmm. It's not ever going to be the tool itself. And except for like maybe differences in tooling and, and again, the capabilities or a particular architecture or something. But that's also why the report you know, occasionally will list tool in terms of like using it as an example. But the report always focuses on technical practices and capabilities, mm -hmm. lean management and agile practices and capabilities, cultural capabilities. And that way teams and organizations can be empowered to select the appropriate tool or language for the context, for the climate, for the problem they are solving. Interesting. I do see you talking about this idea of a climate for learning. Yes. What does that mean? So a climate for learning is something that we first investigated in 2014. Uh, one of the first years that I was, I think that was the first year I was involved in the report. Mm -hmm. And a climate for learning is one in which Everyone is sort of excited to learn mm -hmm. and you view learning and opportunities to pick up new tools or technologies or processes as an investment 
and not as a cost, right? right? It's not like, oh, I have to go do this thing. But it's like, okay, what's new? What's cool? What do we get to do? What do we get to pick up? And in other contexts, so I actually was doing lit review that very, very first year and climate for learning came out of an accounting paper, hmm. right? And I pulled it out. I want to say it was one of Rosemary's papers. I, she was one of my colleagues at Utah State. And I was like, this is really interesting. And it's driving performance gains and performance outcomes in a handful of other organizations and in other industries in areas that are kind of complex, right? I bet this would work in technology. And it was predictive in 2014. And so we wanted to reaffirm this year. And it has shown up as being significant in some of our assessment work. And it indeed is reaffirmed again this year Mm -hmm. in this year's report. And we find that it's particularly important as we think about it, this makes sense, right? Anecdotally, because technology is changing so quickly. Our market is changing so quickly. Our customers' expectations are changing so quickly. And so if we can help reinforce this and foster this climate for learning, it really helps us because, you know, we have so much to do. And so what we found is that climate for learning helps positively impact our organizational culture, mm-hmm. right? Which which we need to be kind of healthy and dynamic and growing. And one way to help influence and grow and reinforce a climate for learning is by doing retrospectives. Right. But kind of again, like retrospectives done right. Right. So it's not just like do it and like kick it away and then don't pay attention to it or blameful ones, right? But yeah. do retrospectives for learning, right? And then really create new learning opportunities in the organization. There's always a focus on trying to do like the blameless postmortem. Is that really what we're just trying to achieve here? So it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So some people call them learning reviews. Some people call them retrospectives. Some people call them blameless postmortems. I really like, there was something that was written up in the last year or two by J. Paul Reed, and he called the blame aware. And I really like that concept because we always have some kind of subconscious bias, right? We always have some some kind of something there. So I like that he kind of explicitly calls out that at some point we have this underlying reflex to lay blame somewhere or point the finger somewhere at at someone or something. And so by doing your blameless postmortem, but understanding that that will probably be the reflex, it helps to kind of do it and and try to avoid laying blame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, folks know when they made mistakes. Oh, absolutely. Well, and there's a difference between blame and mistake, right? right? And also, a mistake represents the very, very best opportunity to improve the system. Sure. Right? I think it was, and this is one of my favorite examples and incredible like examples, was it the, the S3 outage? Right? So there was an S3 outage and I think there was, I think it actually came down to someone just fat fingering something. Yeah. Right? It was a typo. It was a, it was a typing error. Nowhere in that retro did it say that it was, it was a human error. But quite honestly, let's think about it. At what point should any system let you type something in and hit enter and cause a massive outage like that? Nowhere. Sure. So that's not actually that person's fault. What it should have done is take something, take input, come up with a confirmation screen saying, is this what you want to do? Right? Right. Like, yes, that's a mistake. But that mistake is like highlights a huge hole in the system that someone else didn't do. Yeah. Again, which, you know, isn't necessarily like their fault. I'm using finger quotes around fault. <laughs> but that that highlights a gap in the system. And at least it was only an S3 outage for a little bit, right? Yep. 
But this idea of just acknowledging it shouldn't be possible to fat finger and create an outage. There's got to be a mechanism to be able to, to deal with that. Yeah. And I, I love, uh, there was a big blog, there was a great blog post written up by Rin Daniels, right? And they talk about how they won the three armed sweater award at Etsy, you know, back when they were at Etsy. <laughs> and I know. So, and so what the three armed sweater is, they had one of their artisans like create this three armed sweater and you win. And it's a legitimate award. You win the three armed sweater for causing like the biggest outage right. at Etsy. And it is an award because you have highlighted one of the biggest holes in their system, which is an opportunity to get better. Yeah. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to improve the system. And without those types of mistakes, organizations don't learn. If all you do is fire the person for making that mistake, you don't learn what was going through their head when they like worked up to that mistake. Yeah. Right? How did they make that decision? Why did they make that decision? What other things were they doing leading up to that? Because the system up to that point could have been in error or it could have been working perfectly well, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. What was that decision path? That is so crucial. People afraid of blame or afraid they're going to lose their job are going to hold back those kinds of details, the things that would have made the most difference so that, that doesn't happen again. Right, exactly. So it's, yeah, the airline industry has had this nailed for many, many years, right? This idea of it's not, it's, I, I like the concept of blame aware. We know what happened. We don't fire anybody over it. What we actually do is make sure we get better, that we actually can do things better than that. Right. So that that same error can't creep in again. So, Nicole, what's next? Uh, we I can't imagine what 2019 is going to look like when you're running at oh. over 50% high performers. Seems like the situation is pretty good. I know. I'm excited. You know, I'm excited to see what happens. Honestly, I'm, I'm recovering just a little bit because the report just came out. <laughs> yes, I bet. It's a lot of work. I know. Next year, we'll be um, taking a look at what other trends are coming up, mm -hmm. seeing what else we might want to look into. Every year, I think, oh, like I'm not sure what else I'll investigate. I think we've covered almost all of it. Uh, this year, we knew we needed to do cloud. Next year, I think it'll be an extension on cloud and kind of teasing out some of the differences, mm -hmm. probably looking at platform in more detailed ways. But it's always exciting at this point to see the response to the report and then have more conversations, right? To see what else is happening out there, mm -hmm. right? This is where I get to start to collect stories. And those stories always inform next year's research, which is the most fun for me. Absolutely. Well, it's a great report to read. Very exciting to see. I, I almost feel like our industry is getting better. Who would have thunk it? I know. I'm excited. <laughs> Nicole Forsgren, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hey, thank you. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. Mm -hmm.